Life Audio. Welcome to Christian Natural Health with naturopathic Dr. Lauren DeVille. Christian Natural Health is the podcast on how to get and stay healthy God's way. You'll hear topics on nutrition, exercise, sleep, avoiding toxicity, meditating on scripture, what supplements to take, stress management, defeating anxiety and worry, how to reconcile Eastern medicine approaches with Christianity, and a whole lot more. Now, here's your host, Dr. Lauren. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Today I'm going to be continuing and finishing my apologetic series, or at least I expect this to be the last one, and today I'm talking about the age of the earth. So there is a bit of a debate amongst believers regarding how to reconcile scripture with scientific claims about the age of the earth. Many assume that the evidence that the earth is millions of years old is watertight, and therefore we only have three options. Find a way to fit millions of years into the Bible somewhere, reject clear scientific evidence, or reject the Bible entirely. Those who do try to cram millions of years into scripture have to do it somewhere in Genesis 1. I've heard this done in two ways. One is the gap theory, which places millions of years between Genesis 1-1, when God created the heavens and the earth, and Genesis 1-2, when the earth was without form and void. The idea is that earth was created once, destroyed, and then remade in between the verses. There's a fascinating book called The Invisible War by Donald Barnhouse that makes this claim fairly compellingly, but so far as I can tell, even if one were to subscribe to this idea, the earth was still remade in Genesis 1-2, at which point the Clark clock should start over, so this won't solve the biblical young earth problem, at least not as far as I can see. The other possibility uses 2 Peter 3.8, which says that a day to the Lord is as a thousand years, to extrapolate that a day to the Lord is also as millions of years. Therefore, six days of creation were actually millions of years apiece. There are a number of philosophical problems with this. In certain places, scripture is poetic and should be interpreted as such. Psalm 91, for instance, says that he shall cover you with his feathers and under his wings you shall take refuge, Psalm 91.4. This is obvious poetry meant to evoke the image and feeling that God protects us the way a mother hen protects protects her chicks. It would be absurd to think that this means that God has literal feathers. Many of the, the Psalms employ similar poetic imagery, as do many of the prophetic books, like song, and also Song of Songs, etc. And these should be interpreted as poetry, not as literal historical books. But Genesis is written like an historical book. Genesis 1 is about as clear as it could possibly be that we're talking about six literal days. After each day, the scripture says, so the evening and the morning were the blank day, the first, the second, etc., to illustrate that we are talking about 24 hours. Also, Genesis says, after each day, and God saw that it was good. Death is not good. Death is the result of sin, Romans 6:23. Sin didn't happen until Genesis 3. If each of the six days of creation was actually millions of years, do we suppose that no creatures died during that entire time? And if death 
did enter before Adam and Eve, Eve ever sinned, then how was creation pronounced good? Romans eight nineteen to 22 tells us that even creation groans under the weight of corruption. It too must ultimately be redeemed. When did that it become corrupted if not by sin in Genesis 3? Finally, if Genesis 1 is really a metaphorical abstraction representing millions of years of evolutionary change, what other apparent historical scriptures can be allegorized? Was there really a flood? How about a real resurrection? In short, what can you trust? The Bible is either true or it's not. If the Bible is literally trustworthy, what do we do with all the evidence that proves the Earth is millions of years old? Does science actually prove this? Carbon-14 dating is the best-known dating method that most people think of in conjunction with this question. The most common isotope of carbon is carbon-12, but all carbon-based life forms start out with a certain, albeit very small, amount of the carbon-14 isotope in life. Carbon-14 is radioactive, which means over time, after death, it decays via beta decay, in which one of its neutrons becomes a proton, which turns it into nitrogen. The half-life of carbon-14 decay is only 5,700 years, give or take 30 years in either direction. That means it takes roughly 5,700 years for half the amount of carbon-14 that started out in organic material to decay into nitrogen. So you can't use carbon-14 dating for anything older than 100,000 years. Past that point, there shouldn't be any carbon-14 left. And yet, some dinosaur bones have actually been found to still contain carbon-14. How is this possible if they're supposed to be millions of years old? Those who defend the evolutionary timescale will claim that the carbon-14 must have crept in via contamination. Yet, there are even more remarkable findings in dinosaur bones than carbon-14. Many still contain intact biomolecules, and in the show notes I'll include a comprehensive list, a link to it. Uh, these include hemoglobin and blood residue, retinal tissue, and skin. Ages at a greater time scale than 50 to 100,000 years are determined via radiometric dating of igneous rocks, which are rocks formed by volcanic eruption, often using potassium-40, which decays into argon-40. Once the lava cools, the rocks are born, quote-unquote, and the assumption is that any elements that are in a gaseous state at the time will escape before the lava cools into a solid. Argon-40 is a gas, so once hardened, the igneous rock should start out with no argon. Whatever potassium there is should, over a long period of time, decay into argon-40. The half-life of this process is 1.25 billion years. Thus, the ratio of potassium to argon can serve as a proxy for the age of the rock. Unfortunately, this isn't always accurate. The igneous rocks formed from the Mount St. Helens eruption of 1980 were tested using the potassium-argon method and were dated to be hundreds of thousands of years old. Apparently, all the argon gas did not escape prior to the lava solidifying into rock, making the rocks appear many orders of magnitude older than they really were. Additionally, igneous rocks are porous, so gas can diffuse into or out of the rocks, further confounding the process. If this method is so wildly inaccurate for dating a known eruption, how can we trust it for anything unknown? Another common dating method is the ratio of uranium-238 to lead-238. This decay is a 14-step process, not a one-step process like potassium to argon, with a half-life of 4.5 billion years. Each of these steps produces a helium atom, so for every one atom of uranium, eight helium atoms should be produced. Because helium escapes from rocks fairly quickly, they are porous, remember, there should be little to no helium left if the rocks were billions of years old. But the RATE project, which stands for Radioisotopes in the Age of the Earth, at the Institute for Creation Research, determined that some of these rocks had high amounts of helium still trapped in them. This finding is, is consistent with radioactive decay. It was occurring, but it was inconsistent with the expected 4.5 billion year half-life. 
One possible explanation for this is that half-lives might not be as fixed as previously believed. This has been demonstrated for other elements in laboratory experiments. Radioactive rhenium-187 decays to osmium-187 with a 41.6 billion year half-life. But if all of rhenium's 187 of all of rhenium-187's electrons are experimentally removed, the half-life can be sped up to a mere 33 years. Granted, that was under laboratory conditions, but it does cast further doubt on the absolute nature of half-life decay in general. Other common dating methods are relative, using the date of something known, quote-unquote, to infer the date of something unknown. These involve in index fossils, i.e. The fo- if the fossil of one creature is found next to a dinosaur fossil from the Cambrian period, scientists will then assume that the previously unknown fossil must be 400 to 500 million years old. But then, of course, the question becomes, were they correct in dating the index fossil? Paleomagnetism is another possible relative method. The Earth's polarity has changed at various times in its history, and the polarity of magnetic rocks reflects the Earth's polarity at the time they were buried. Scientists believe that they know when the Earth's polarity reversed in the last 10,000 years, so ferromagnetic materials bearing a certain polarity can serve as a proxy for the date of anything found nearby, provided it was estimated to be 10,000 years old or younger. But again, this depends on a lot of assumptions, and there is evidence that Earth's polarity reversed many times rapidly over a very short period of time. Creation scientists believed that this was a consequence of the worldwide flood, in which some of the waters came from the fountains of the deep breaking up, and that says that in Genesis 7, verse 11. This sounds very much like shifting tectonic plates, which would have set off volcanic eruptions. Since Earth's magnetic field is generated from its churning molten core, it stands to reason that Earth's polarity might have been affected by the same process. So the bottom line, we're bombarded with the narrative that evolution and the deep time of Earth is an established fact rather than a theory, but it's not true. Majority opinion does not establish a truth. What matters isn't what the majority believes, but whether or not they're right. The idea that a majority opinion equals truth is called the logical fallacy of faulty appeal or the appeal to the many. Nevertheless, it can be daunting and perhaps even feel arrogant for the lay public to challenge the unanimous narrative of the experts. There is, in fact, a large number of experts who do not subscribe to the dominant narrative of evolution as as an established fact, though. In April 2020, over 1,100 scientists in a vast range of scientific disciplines, including chemistry, biology, medicine, geology, and paleontology, signed a statement claiming, quote, we are skeptical that random variation and natural selection can explain the complexity of life. A serious review of the evidence for Darwinism should be encouraged. These voices might be suppressed, but they're out there. Science and religion are not in conflict. God made the universe and everything in it, and science is simply the study of what he made. Psalm 19 verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. All truth is God's truth. True science always points to him. So I hope that was helpful to you. Thanks for joining me, and I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Christian Natural Health. This show is run by you, so please write in with topic and guest suggestions for future shows. For more great content, subscribe to Dr. Lauren's blog at www.drlaurendeville.com or follow her on Facebook or Twitter at Dr. Lauren Deville. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to share it with your friends and give us a five-star rating in iTunes. It really helps us to stand out so other people can discover great content as well. Have a great week and God bless you. Hi, I'm Zach. And I'm Randy. And we're from Salty Saints Podcast. We're a theology and apologetics podcast. To find out more, subscribe at lifeaudio.com.